1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm John Plotz, welcoming you to yet another Recall This Book episode drawn from our partnership with Novel Dialogue. We've been working with Novel Dialogue ever since Vadi and I launched it back in March of 2021. You may want to check out earlier conversations featuring Orhan Pamuk, Helen Garner, and Jennifer Egan. Fall 2023 is going to see the debut of Novel Dialogue's weird season, which you won't want to miss. But today, we bring you this gem. So today, uh, I'm honored to bring you Joshua Cohen in conversation with my colleague and beloved friend, Eugene Shepard, who is associate professor of modern Jewish history and thought here at Brandeis and author, besides many, many articles of a stunning 2007 book, Leo Strauss and the Politics of Exile, the Making of a Political Philosopher. Eugene, 13 years later, no, 15 years later, I'm still stunned by your book, and I'm glad to be Zooming with you today. Thanks, John. Okay, Joshua Cohen, the main attraction, is the much celebrated and yet annoyingly young author of four short story collections and by my count, six novels, I think. Among them, uh, Wits, no, Vits or Wits? Wits. Vits. Vits, Vits. all right. Book of Numbers and Moving Kings, as well as the novel that sparked today's invitation, The Ned and Yahoos, an account of a minor and ultimately even negligible episode in the history of a very famous family. Okay, so as listeners likely already know the Netanyahu's won the the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for fiction for its fictionalized portrayal of a disaster of a job seeking visit that the famous Netanyahu clan once paid to upstate New York. Well, maybe not quite upstate long before Netanyahu became the larger than life figure he is now. So the Guardian said about the novel with its tight time frame, loopy narrator portrait of a Jewish American life against a semi rural background and moments of cruel academic satire, the Ned and crossbreeds Roth's the Ghost Rider and Nabokov's Pale Fire. I mean, I think it's fair, but I also think it sells short that the way that the novel always plays with our knowledge, that one of the annoying teenagers, who seems to be only a minor character, goes on to be Netanyahu, the past and present prime minister of an Israel, um, now seemingly firmly committed to the kind of ethno-nationalism that his father had been preaching way back in Eisenhower's America, where the novel's set. So it's a campus comedy, yeah, and it is very, very funny, but also one that throws a sidelight on the politics of today as they're present in Israel and also in our own Trump shadowed America. So Joshua, welcome. It's a great honor to have you here.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you for the introduction. Thank you from both of you. Thank you, Eugene, for for doing this.
1: Yeah, seriously. Thank you, Eugene. So, Joshua, we're hoping you might want to begin by reading from the opening pages of the book, including by Eugene's special request, the novel's epigraph from the <laughs> Zionist firebrand,
0: Zev Jabotinsky. Okay. Well, let's do the title as well, then. The Netanyahu, oh, yeah, An Account of a Minor and Ultimately Even Negligible Episode in the History of a Very Famous Family. And... Uh, why not? Let's read the dedication to the memory of Harold Bloom. Um, eliminate the diaspora or the diaspora will eliminate you. Speech of the 9th of Av, 1938, Zev Jabotinsky. My name is Ruben Blum and I'm N. yes, an historian. Soon enough though, I guess I'll be historical by which I mean I'll die and become history myself in a rare type of transformation traditionally reserved for the purer scholars. Lawyers die and don't become the law. Doctors die and don't turn into medicine, but biology and chemistry professors pass away and decompose into biology and chemistry. They mineralize into geology. They disperse into their science just as surely as mathematicians become statistics. The same process holds true for us historians. In my experience, we're the only ones in the humanities for whom this holds true, the only ones who become what we study, we age, we yellow, we go wrinkled and brittle, along with our materials until our lives subside into the past, to become the very substance of time. Or maybe that's just the Jew and me talking. Guys believe in the word becoming flesh, but Jews believe in the flesh becoming word, a more natural, rational incarnation. By way of further introduction, I will now quote a remark made to me by the who shall remain nameless then president of the American Historical Association when I met him at a symposium back in my student days, just after the Second World War. Ah, he said, limply pressing my hand. Blum, did you say? A a Jewish historian? though the man surely intended this remark to wound me it merely succeeded in bringing delight and even now i find i can smile at the description i appreciate its accidental imprecision and the way the double entendre can function as a type of psychological test a jewish historian when you hear that what do you think what image springs to mind the point is the epithet as applied is both correct and incorrect i am a jewish historian but I am not an historian of the Jews or I've never been one professionally. Instead, I'm an American historian, or I was. After half a century in the professorate, I was recently retired from my post as the Andrew William Mellon Memorial Professor of American Economic History at Corbin University in Corbindale, New York. In the occasionally rural, occasionally wild heart of Chautauqua County, just inland from Lake Erie, among the apple orchards and apiaries and dairies, or as dismissive, geographically illiterate New York City folk insist on calling it upstate.
2: Well, so, 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 Joshua, I mean, I have to say that you, the novel had me right from the go, uh, the get-go with um, hitting the the reader in the face with this image of negation of exile from Jabotinsky on the ninth of Av, the Tisha, you know, Tisha of 1938, even worse, starkly, uh, kind of putting that position to the diasporic Jew of saying, we got to get rid of this existential condition, or we're all going to be killed. That's, that's quite a way to start a humorous novel. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a little bit about I mean, certainly, uh, Benzion uh, Netanyahu uh, as Jabotinsky's representative in America makes perfect sense. But starting off the novel with this epigraph, can you um, give us some insight to what you were thinking? Uh, it's a good line.
0: You know, it it, it, it you know, and it, it makes it 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 wakes people up. I I I read it, and I honestly, um, you know, there's a perverse part of me that said. And is that a bad thing? When I read that line, right? I mean, so you know, to to read the line in its proper context, you have to believe that it's negative, right? And you also have to believe that elimination, in the sense, you know, and I believe it was like some version of you know, in Hebrew at least, it was you know chassel, right? It was a chisul, it was like a liquidation and elimination, right? That that it means something physical. It means that you know you will be murdered right? That's absolutely the way in which Jabotinsky meant it, right? Um, uh, You know, speaking for him (laughs) as his elected representative on earth, I can say that that's how he meant it, right? But to read it in an assimilation context, right, Um, in the context of people who want to still be alive, but not to be Jewish, to be called Jewish, to be identified as Jewish, to be associated with that, um, it, it would say, well, great you know, I don't want to eliminate the diaspora. I want the diaspora to eliminate a part of my heritage, if you want to call it my identity, that I don't, that I never chose and that, uh, uh, and that's caused me nothing but service. They wouldn't use that word, but they, you know, and and I was interested in that element because that is the counterpoint between the Ruben Blum figure, you know, who is the idea of, of, of my Jewishness as being erased and that's not maybe that's not a bad thing. And and then of course Benzio Netanyahu, who comes out of, of J- the Jabotinsky, you know, comes out of Jabotinsky directly and and certainly believes in that comment in a um in, in a mortal sense.
2: Ah, I, I it's fine. I've never read that line from the a kind of like uh, an acculturationist assimilationist sense that uh, the Jew within me will be eliminated, but that's not necessarily a bad thing um, for some people. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and
0: also, frankly, you know, even for the great enemies of, of, of Jabotinskyism, of revisionism, it was not necessarily a bad thing. Right. I mean, that is, in fact, it was the positive, you know, construction of a modern Israeli identity.
2: Right. Uh, Although you know it really just kind of sets your teeth on edge, you know, just <laughs> to begin with, and you're kind of bracing yourself already for Bención's character, even though he doesn't appear for a little while. But uh, even for these uncomfortable experiences in the opening pages, of uh, actually
1: could i relate that there's i had a question for you um Josh, was kind of half formed about the different either ors that the novel sets up and the way that you framed it there that notion that you know the assimilationism as as a kind of soft elimination like or des- desideratum of an elimination there's this really i think poignant scene when the blum family husband and wife are walking back home at the end after this disastrous visit and edith talks about how belief has kind of gone away for her as a category you know we used to believe and she she lists things that she believes in which were american ideals not jewish ideals and she says but i don't have that anymore so i i wasn't i I would love to hear your thoughts about what that you know how that scene fits in because there it seems as if the alternative is to not believe you know just to to let it all go like in other words not to pick up a new set of beliefs like a statue of liberty style belief but just yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I think that, um, you know, it, it, there's another line that haunts me almost as much as the Jabotinsky line. Right. Is the the, the line that's I mean, I guess it's usually attributed to Novalis, the German poet, where he says, um, you know, every book must contain its counter book. Right. Mm-hmm. The idea that that that, you know, you, you you know, the book has to be its own enemy at a certain point and tear itself apart from within. Um, and uh, uh, you know, for for someone who is writing a book about identity and about a quote unquote identity politics, but in the in the deepest sense, right, and using the, our contemporary understanding of identity politics uh, uh, as a sort of uh, uh, comparanda with past identity politics that actually you know had armies and created countries, right? Um, I I I wanted to uh, also realize how kind of unrelentingly male the book was, right? It was these two dudes who were just sort of at cer- certain point, you know, well, one's screaming more than the other, but they are, you know, they are representative men, let's say. And and because I knew Judy, the daughter, was going to have this last say in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I need I knew that I needed to prepare for that with Edith and she's very much you know she's a a a a a woman of of the depression generation right who grew up with New Deal Democrat politics right and um and and the, all of these abstract nouns like hope and freedom and liberty and so on and so forth. And this idea that that America was, you know, America was the the you know or Lagoyim, right? Was the light unto the nations, right? Hmm. And and then she finds herself, you know, far from home, you know, in the middle of the woods, chained to this guy who's chained to this job. Who's just you know hoping to get tenure? She's underemployed at this library, right? And um, and and then she she has to see her house, which is her last domain of control—her kitchen, her her living room, right—be um, taken over by um, by a, a madman in you know in in her, in her conception. <laughs> and and I think at a, at a certain point she was trying to say, you know, enough. You know, these, these, these questions can exist on a nation state level. They can exist, you know, between men in cafes maybe, mm-hmm. as they historically did, but this is a home. And within a home, we don't fight like this. We don't believe in anything beyond our love for one another or beyond our provision for one another. So stop talking to me about Jews and talk to me about me. And so in in many ways, it was about sort of the when politics meet the home. And um and and so for me, that was that was enormously, you know, important when she says, you know, after dealing with these horrible people, I, I feel relieved that I believe in nothing. Right. And and for her, you know, th- there's the way in which that nihilism in a way can be a nihilism of American consumerism of the 50s. And 60s which is you know i have my you know my pampers that i can throw out and i don't need to wash diapers anymore and i have my washing machine and i have my dishwasher and i have my this and i have my that right but it can also be it's a pretty highly developed stage of certain societies to be able to not have to take an ideological stance mm-hmm. you no know? and it was for me a, a combating this idea uh uh what for me was the ultimate revisionism which was the revisionism of of like late theory of like the Zizeks of this world who'll tell you that, you know, everything is political, including the choice not to have a politics.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and you know, I, I, when I kind of first was exposed to that, having gone to school sort of under the sign of theory, right? I remember just saying like, you know, people who, who don't think they have a politics, that itself is a politics. And I remember thinking to myself, well, you should meet my mom. <laughs> you know, because like, she'll tell you, you know, like, you know, I'm scared of you, but my mother's not right. And she'll tell you what she thinks about that. And, you know, and, and so that, that was it. It was, it was in many ways, like, um, you know, the point of America and of all the suffering that came before America and our arrival in America was that, so we didn't have to have a politics anymore.
1: Right
2: but don't you think the character of Edith then ends up in that position of it's almost like a deracinated kind of position um it's exhausted thoroughly exhausted and empty I mean I I didn't see it as being you know free of things necessarily uh you're giving kind of a more um emancipatory spin um and what it means to be free of these things um but you don't see that
0: absolutely, I mean but I, but I think I think she I, I think she finds some liberation in deracination. right. I met Roth once, never met Bello, um never met Malamud, I've met Cynthia Ozick a few times and, you know and exchanged you know letters and things, and I spent a fair amount of time with with Harold, and you know we're talking about different generations there, but with time that kind of can collapse into you know a certain block of people, you know, the masters, in a way. And, um, and I began publishing when they were packing it in and passing away. And, um, and I knew that I was going to spend the rest of my life, no matter how long it was, being compared to these people. And I had to find a way not to hate them. You know, I'm, we're going to spend the rest of our lives, you know, living in the uh, endless obituary or eulogy for like the boomers, right? It's like there's going to be the month when Bob Dylan dies, there's going to be like the month when the Rolling Stone, when Mick Jagger dies, then when Keith Richards dies, and we're just going to be living under these, you know, under the sign of their, of their mortality, right, forever. And I felt that that was going to be the case with my career and the great flowering of Jewish American literature. Uh, 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 the point at which Jews had become assimilated enough to be able to claim, if not to fully believe, right, you know, I don't know, that they were 100% representative American authors. And because I was coming along late to the occasion, because I there, there was necessarily an epigon quality to it, a belatedness to it, you know, it, it really got me thinking about Harold's anxiety of influence, right? and And what this meant and what it meant that like, I had to deal with Harold personally, you know? And I, I I said to myself, look, I'm never going to be able to get people to shut up about Roth. I'm never gonna be able to get people to shut up about Bella. They're gonna to have to die. So I'm, first of all, I'm gonna to have to outlive them. Second of all, uh, I, I, the only way that I could for myself say that I have gone through this agon would, I'm going to write a Philip Roth book. You know, I know how to do it. It's, you know, like, it's not so hard. Why is it not so hard? <laughs> because Philip Roth already did it, right? So in a way it, it was, I'm going to write a book. It's going to be set in 1959. It's the year Goodbye Columbus was published, right? I'm going to go i'm going to write a book in this Jewish American style, if there is one. But it's not going to be about this amazing flowering of American Jewish culture and the height of assimilation it's going to be about the politics that the writers of those of the the Jewish American writers, of the time ignored or weren't even aware of. In the same way that Jewish American writers in the 50s wrote about, you know, country clubs and having in se- 60s and having sex and so on and so forth, but didn't write about the Shoah. In fact, didn't really write about the Shoah until the late 60s, or early 70s, right? They weren't writing about Israel until the 70s and 80s. And, um, but I said to myself, okay, I'm going to write the book that, you know, a f- fictional mashup or amalgam of Roth and Bellow and whatever would have written in 1959, 1960 had, you know, they run into Benzio and Netanyahu, you know, in Grand Central Station and, you know, had the balls to write about it. Can I
1: just ask, um, in the the names you mentioned, which are incredibly useful for locating the constellations, does Hannah Arendt come in it for you at all?
0: I was thinking about I think Hannah Arendt when I was I was thinking more about like Hannah Arendt's readers mm-hmm. <laughs> when I did uh, when I did Edith's parents, you know, German uh-huh. Upper yeah. West Side Jews, you know, we got a psychology degree late in life, intellectuals who want to go down to the village and listen to bebop and then, you know, check out a you know Abex painting show later on, you know, um, but 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 Arendt herself. No, I mean, I I, I think I I was thinking about, you know, the um, really, I was thinking about, you know, what would happen, you know, if an American Jewish author who had all of the Brio, let's say, all of the wind in their sails, right, of the night of of post-war triumphalism, Mm -hmm. right, and had this sense that the world was their sexual, artistic, intellectual, cultural oyster, right? What happened in, instead of, you know, gobbling down that oyster, they decided to be really, really anxious about the state of Israel. <laughs> and um, and so in, in that way, I felt like I was exercising that, if not the anxiety of influence, then the accusations of the anxiety of influence. And um, and also issuing somewhat of a corrective, I think, to the way that those, you know, not that they were wrong to write about what they were wrong, but just there were other stories going on, right? And, and, and in hindsight, it's very, it's, it's, it's exceedingly easy for me to see that uh, I think there's a line in the book that, that you know, at mid-century, uh, uh, the two largest Jewish populations, you know, in the world were each busy becoming something else. And, um, and yet, no. you know, there wasn't really much writing on either side kind of about that. I mean, the Israeli writing, there was more Israeli writing about it, but it was so inflected uh, uh, with an almost socialist, realist didacticism, right? That uh, it didn't really capture the pathos, let's say, of what was lost. Yeah. Can I,
1: that really helps me understand something about the way that 20 the 2020s come into this book and let me tell you naively what i thought and then i think you're going to correct me so naively i thought that the point of what's going on in the late 50s and early 60s that you're bringing out is that there's a um ideology that's kind of on the ropes like that the jabotinsky side of things that way of thinking was yeah it was a strand of jewish identity globally in Israel, especially, but maybe in America, too. But it was it was a strand that seemed so slender, like it had drawn so thin that it was going to snap. And now we fast forward 60 years and not only did it not snap, it's like the rope. I mean, it is the essence of what goes on in Israel. And for all I know, that's true of America. Yeah. But but I think but 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 Joshua, this is where I want you to correct me because you're but you're saying it was never that slender. You're saying actually it was pretty strong even in the fifties and sixties, that was actually really there. It's just that writers didn't notice it or didn't think it thought it was vulgar to dwell on or something like that.
0: Well, I think, look, I mean, this is you know, the story of revisionism yeah. in, 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 the Jewish context is I think absolutely a return of the repressed. Yeah. Right. And I think what it has to do with, and I don't know that I, honestly, I don't know that I did a, a great job of communicating it in the book. It's one of the hardest things I think that I had, that I wanted to communicate um and it and there are a couple there are two lines about it um in the book but maybe i should have come down hard on it just it wouldn't have been historically kind of accurate maybe but um you know the 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 revisionists, but especially the 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 branch that really comes out of Jabotinsky personally into benzina personally these are people who consider um, who, who entered the most consequential decade in American, you know, sorry, in all of Jewish history, right? Feeling that they have the blood of 6 million Jews on their hands. They feel that they failed to save the Jews of Europe. They failed to bring them out of Europe. They failed to um, have take the land by force as the place for them to be resettled and that the labor Zionists, that Mapai, Nix, that, 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 that these quizlings in their, you know, in, in, in their sense, um, essentially sold out their co-religionists in order to, uh, to, to get the approval of the great powers for their state that would, you know, that they couldn't take, but that had to be given to them. And it's, so when we talk about a slender thread, you know, the, the, the Jewish religion, whatever that is, right, certainly has developed a, Holocaust religion or Shoah religion sits. And I the show religion is the revisionist religion in many ways. And and so I so when we say a a slender thread, yes, you know, Jabotinsky is, you know, dead and you know, Benzinho picks up his body and, you know, dumps him in Long Island because because they won't take him back, you know? And um and, and and a lot of that world gets cleaned up, and certainly the you know those guys get get excluded from politics in the early state, and they don't you know there's there's no room for these people in the early in the you know in the early governments. But um, but at the same time, culturally and it, it academically, and in, in in almost every form of Jewish culture, it became a memorial culture about the Holocaust, and there was this idea that not enough was done. Now people don't say. Not enough was done because it's hard to say. It's easier to blame Truman or Roosevelt or whatever, right? Uh, it's harder to blame Ben Gurion, right? And it's harder to blame, you know, Jabotinsky. Because most people don't know who he is, right? And then there's the sense of, are you blaming yourself? It's that same way of the people who survived. Did they survive at the expense of someone mm. else? And I so so. I, in answer to the question, I think you know the 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 thread that continues is this thread of how did we let this happen? You know, I just edited in a, uh, um, and, and did some translation of it and put out a book of um, sort of like an I- Elias Kennedy reader, right? And it's the creamsicle cover, yes, yeah. an orange cover, like right? a beautiful and, book. And, yeah, I really like correct. it. Yeah, and, and so so he has a line that that where he says, you know. The greatest embarrassment of the Jews, that the Jews will never get over, is that there was um, such a, a myth of Jewish power that Jews control everything, and yet they allowed themselves to be right. killed. And it's an embarrassment that a people will never be allowed to get over. And I associate that embarrassment with political revisionism. Hmm. Vitamin water just dropped a new zero sugar flavor called with love. Get the taste of raspberry and dark chocolate for the all warm, all fuzzy, all self-care, zero self-doubt you. Grab a with love today. Vitamin water, zero sugar, nourish every you. Vitamin water is a registered trademark of Glasso.
2: Yeah, I, I, I thought it was, you know, back to the the Jabotinsky revisionist line, you know, uh, Jabotinsky's body gets, <laughs> it, it doesn't get buried in the land at first. Uh, it's in, closer to the areas of uh, Corbin College or you know, Corbin College. When you take us to the end, uh, you say, well, you know, when Bibi comes along, uh, Jabotinsky comes back. And um, also, Jabotinsky, now there's a Jabotinsky uh, Jabotinsky Day celebrated in Israel. um and those even though they were exiled um and shut out of the early governments, now they're certainly <laughs> uh, make up a kind of i don't I, it's t- tough to see how they can be led out of the government uh, for the foreseeable. I
0: mean they they are the government, right yeah and 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 they will be, I think, for a while
2: absolutely and beyond beyond anything that Benjamin Netanyahu does i mean this is it's a it's absolutely. it's cut into the body politic from a fringe uh, minority dissident opinion and movement to something that has taken over much of the population
0: yeah and and a fringe and a fringe movement that for all of its stupidity it actually truly uh, knows that it's these fringe movements that have been responsible for jewish continuity
2: In the kind of the core of the novel, you've got these two letters of recommendation, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, One um, intended to help out uh, Netanyahu, and the other one, a kind of unsolicited poison pill, but like brilliantly uh, cast it off. Well, they're
0: both saying, they're both saying, just take them.
2: (laughs) right he's a national hero or he's like a national threat it doesn't matter so where did you get this idea to use uh letter of letters of recommendations as a literary device i mean john and i have to read letters of recommendation uh quite a bit sometimes they're um more imaginative than others but uh you <laughs> you really get a lot of substance out of these letters um especially and the, the levavi uh letters you give a whole kind of history of revisionism and bencion's father it's yeah. obvious you've been reading adi, adi Armon's pieces in the Arets yeah. over the last few years yep. to, tell us a little bit about this uh, academic letter letter of recommendation yeah up? i
0: guess, the the first person is very limiting
2: Right? right? And, and you want to get
0: out of the first person. And also, you know, how do you talk about things that this guy who was born in the Bronx and then goes out in the Western, you know, Chautauqua County, New York, you know, he wasn't around for, right? right. And, and, um, and so I knew I needed other voices. I love writing letters in other voices. I think that direct address is something that truly arrests a reader, right? When it's you, even if they know it's to address to another you, there is that proxy feeling of when there's that pronoun when you say, oh, me? Okay, tell me about it. And um, so there's that. I also always wanted to have these like east west divides, right? Like you have the Yekka parents who are Edith's parents, and then you know, you have these pale settlement parents who are Reuben's parents. So then kind of I have this rabbi who's like very Yiddishy and you know, and like kind of a shtick rabbi from Philly, you know, and then I have this, you know, Yekka professor who just, you know, and I, I come from those people on, on my father's side and, you know, and when they have to explain a point to you, it's just, you know, you sit down and, you, you know, mate. you need zit for it, right? Like, do you, you, you have the whole day? And, and um, so I wanted to do that. I also thought it was really important to explain, you know, why this guy is in America. It's not enough just to have him. I think a lot of people, you know, certainly, I mean, Israelis, Israelis who don't read Adi Ramon's pieces, for example, or some, some other, you know, or, 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 or the few other things that are accurate about Ben <laughs> yeah. been Netanyahu, right? Because Bibi has been so engaged in a distortion campaign, the father of America-Israel relations, and all of this nonsense, right? Distorting his father's, you know, career, and elevating his father, and so on. Um, uh, right. uh, most people just... You know, why does someone come to the United States? Well, because we have money and it's like a good place to get a job, you know? Like, right. But but that wasn't the case here, right? I mean, during the most consequential thing, decade of you know modern Jewish history, he's not being murdered in Europe and he's not building his country, you know? He's he's in suburban Long Island and then he's in suburban Philly. And so, you know, there is this um, uh, uh, sense that, you know, this man becomes this sort of itinerant Almost Yiddish figure, you know, with his like, you know, hand out, you know, begging himself around on the adjunct circuit, looking for looking for a gig, and and it became really important to explain why that, you know, how that came to be, and right. and letters were sort of the only way, you know, to do it. I also think that there is this, um, you know, there is this you know, the unreliable narrator aspect of of you know first person, right? The unreliability of first person. You know, it's obviously a, a well-known. I mean, that that is first person is unreliability, right? Because it's not this this you know omniscient, you know, God's eye, God's ear, right? On top of it, it's not supposed to be anything besides one person's experience. But um, one of the things that I think is 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 really interesting and it's slightly different from unreliability because I think of unreliability as a Gaia concept almost, right? Like, there's this other thing where you think you're writing about one thing as an author you're sure you're writing about one thing as an author but you're actually completely sabotaging yourself right so it's not unreliability it's self sabotage right and and that to me is something that i feel very very close to as a writer and so i kind of wanted to you know dramatize self-sabotage in this way of you know sure okay a letter of recommendation let's begin you know let's do this guy a favor and then three sentences in you're like he's the worst person i've ever met you know and 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 you know there's i surprise myself like this all the time right i must say with letters you know where where i i say you know i i just want to write a nice character and then Three sentences later, I'm just picking them apart mercilessly, and and so and so um, I, I I've become very interested in writing as as a form of sabotage or insult, and uh, and what better than a letter? So I I wanted to come
1: back to the Kinetti uh, collection that you mentioned, which first of all I just love it. Um, it's called uh, "I Want to Keep Smashing Myself Until I Am Whole," but. You know, there was something in it, in the introduction you said that I thought, I mean, first of all, I really moved me as an account of Kinetti, but I was wondering how much it resonated for you, which is you talked about Kinetti coming to terms with the principle of incompletion, like the notion of incompletion as maybe an aesthetic aspiration rather than as a failure,
2: um you know that that was your that was your take on flight too right yeah
0: I mean I, I I think about it more as like as like with you know with both of those you know foreign wanted to finish things yeah you know I mean he was a popular novelist right and he wanted to finish things and with with Kennedy I, I I he I mean of course he wanted to finish things but he was a much better rationalizer maybe mm. <laughs> his own inability to bring something to completion and I think that he um, really saw in completion as, um, almost a guarantor of posterity because, you know, uh, if, if you can engage people in the cooperative completion of your work,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right. You are assured a place, this idea that, you know, that, that I left something unfinished. If someone becomes interested in it, they become interested in my struggle for it. And in that way I've enlisted them yeah. in my thinking.
1: Yeah. So once again, you've kind of disabled my question because I was actually going to per- pursue the parallel that imperfection is kind of antithetical to a political ideology like Jabotinskyist Zionism. Sort of. But 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 in a way, what you're saying is that there might be a payoff, a political payoff, even in imperfection, like if you can draw people into your project.
0: I mean, what else is the concept of the Mashiach? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's the greatest political move that you could make. Yeah, saying, someone's going to come. And not yet get better but just not just here. yeah right right there's hope but not for us right right and i mean that that to me that principle of incompletion which is before the idea of a uh, that that a political Jewish political autonomy has absorbed the messianic impulses and energies and it is in fact some completion of a project right mm-hmm. but, but that 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 messianic promise you know was very good politics mm-hmm very long time
1: yeah
2: and then once a movement and a state <laughs> lays claim to that messianic purpose then things get um a little bit more complicated I guess
0: yeah I mean that I mean that's there's a thing in that there's a line in that lecture that I actually took from he was you know the the great poet but the disgraced poet Yitzhak Laor, where you know he says you know you you, you never want to make a poem become real.
2: Obviously, your uh, people around Cornell uh, must be pretty obsessed with uh, the book and the treatment of the local uh, kind of population. Mm. I was wondering if you um, talk a little bit about how you decided to kind of build this fantasy of what uh, Corbin College was and the people who live around there. And also, um, you must have heard a million anecdotes about Netanyahu at Cornell, Um, if there's any of that that you just that you were tempted to put in the book, but you decide not to.
0: Well, I mean, the funny thing is, is that, you know, because when it, I, I, everyone assumed everyone, the people who read it, right, they assumed that it was, you know, um, that it was Ithaca, that it was Cornell. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, which, of course, is where he wound up teaching until until Yoni's death, until until 76. But um, the actual, you know, weekend at the blooms which was like a day at the blooms was in new haven Mm -hmm. and uh and i just didn't want to write about new haven because i think it's ugly and boring (laughs) you know like it's a little too close to new york it feels like you know i I mean physically you know geographically but also just the, the the buildings and i i just i didn't want I wanted this perfect American town, so I not that Ithaca. So
1: thank, thanks for destroying our Southern Connecticut listenership right there. Like, yeah, 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 <laughs> totally. Well, I mean, does anyone like New Haven? I, I, <laughs> you know,
0: but you know, I think you get more points the more you shit on it. But, but no, I um, but I I heard a lot of of, of anecdotes from you know about Ben and, you know, and Cornell, but he seems to have been fairly humorless. And 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 more and more humorless as he got older, right? So they're all just kind of anecdotes of him telling someone how dumb they are, <laughs> you know. So and it's amazing how many different stories one can collect where that's the essential outline of the story. It's like someone said one thing, and then said said, "You know how stupid that is," <laughs> right? So you know, I, I heard a lot of those. Um, you know, for me the um, You know, the story that um, the story that 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 Bibi tells often, and in fact, he just told it in his first English language interview since this last election to Barry Weiss the other day, which kind of amazed me because he doesn't talk about it that often was, um, you know, when he gets the call from his brother Ido, right, that Yoni is dead Hmm. and he doesn't call his father. He gets in a car in Cambridge and and drives you know hours and hours out to Ithaca and you know it's a story that he's told a few times but every time he now tells it it's like the opening scene of the ghost writer, right of like walking up the path and seeing through the window the great man pacing in his study right and um and i remember the first time i read that you know anecdote Right. Um, and um, I forget it was in one of BB's books, you know, and they all kind of blur together for me. But um, but that was actually a picture for me of Corbindale. It was, you know, the guy driving, he said through this, you know, uh, and it's funny because Yoni was killed on July 4th, 1976. And mm-hmm. the way that B.B. Has told it is with snow, which is amazing. <laughs> right? It was that snowy bicentennial summer. <laughs> and um, But I think that that's what you know, Ithaca is in his mind, or that's what Boston is in his mind. It's just this snow world. And that was that for me became the picture of Corbindale.
1: Hmm. Um, so here we go, heading into our signature question. So Joshua, this is something we ask every writer in season five. So in the past, we, we used to ask what you ate while you're writing, but we decided to aim a little higher now. So the question is, other than your actual writing supplies and your devices, what kind of surprising thing is is vital to you when you sit down and write?
0: Okay, so I prepared I prepared this. Oh good. Prepared this.
1: Let let listeners note that there's a, a visual component coming. The writer is returning to the microphone. He's returning to the microphone with
0: so this is from the mass grave that uh uh, my great grandparents are probably in uh and it was stolen Uh, i'm not gonna say by who or how um and it obviously had part of its back bashed in where
2: where where's the mass grave
0: i like uh, on the lithuanian polish border like near like um like suwalki poland oh my wow so um this is so we talked my friend
1: this is a human skull we're looking at here yeah.
0: With bachelor, wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Good answer it's to the question, it's right? It's an answer.
1: Not- it's an answer with no comeback. Yeah.
0: Maybe. No, I mean, it keeps me company. You know? Reminds me of, uh, reminds me of where we're going. It comes in handy if we're doing any Shakespeare around here. And, um, and, uh and, uh, you know, I worked for a for number of years as the Eastern European correspondent for The, or the, European correspondent for the Forward, and, uh, and they sent me around a lot of those, you know, places for, 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 for a couple of years, and, um, you know, so it reminds me of, of that time, and, and kind of spending a lot of time with the last, you know, the last living survivors who were still living in Europe, and, uh, and, and people who had also gone through, you know, the, the Soviet experience. You know, um and um and uh you know, I, I for some reason it's easier to talk to I need to talk when I'm writing sometimes. It's easier to talk to a, a skull than it is to like a coffee mug. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. And also and also in my in my defense, in my defense like this is a much nicer place for it to be than the hole that it was in. This is prime New York City real estate. <laughs> Um,
1: so I'm just going to wrap things up then by thanking the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship of the podcast and acknowledge support from our partner, Public Books. Uh, Hannah Jorgensen is our graduate intern, Connor Hibbard, the sound engineer. Please uh, subscribe, rate us, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you might enjoy conversations from past seasons, including shang Ray Lee, Teju Cole, Orhan Pamuk, Helen Garner, Sigrid Nunez, and Carol Phillips. And there are lots more conversations coming. So Eugene, thank you for doing this with me. Joshua, thank you
2: so much for having me, John.
1: Joshua, thank you so much. It was a great conversation.
0: Yeah,
2: this was good. This was good.